It's in times like these that we do have to remember that God is good. Even when we don't know why He allows things like these to happen, He is still on the throne. And He's still doing what He's planned and purposed to do. And, and you know, things like these devastations in Houston, they cause us to ask the hard questions. I'm sure there's many people in Houston today, this week, who have had to step back and re-examine if they've lost homes, if they've lost loved ones. And what is this life all about? And what really matters? And we pause and we think about, you know, when, I, when I'm encountering someone, I'm talking to them about Jesus. One of the questions that I love to ask is, is this. Is, 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 is you stand, if you were to stand before God today, and, when, and make no mistake, one day each of us will. We're going to stand before Him in His presence. And as you stood before Him, and He asks you this question. Why should I let you in my heaven? And what would be your response? What would be your answer? If he says, why should I let you in? And I remember, I I, I was a teacher at Cook Inlet Academy for a while, uh, and I would pass out this questionnaire, I would teach Bible, and I'd give it to these students, and I'd ask them this question, see what their response would be. And as I've taught youth group here in the past, I've passed these questionnaires out, and this was one of the questions I'd put on there. And here's kids who've grown up in the church, They've grown up with their parents knowing Jesus. They, they, they've heard the gospel. But when I pose this question, oftentimes the kind of answers I would get were things like, yeah, I know about Jesus, but, but why would God let me in? Well, I'd tell them, I, I tried to follow you. Like, I tried to do things your way. I, I tried to be a good person. I, 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 I did my best. And I'm, like, I'm here to tell you this morning, if that's our answer to God, of why we should let, He should let us into heaven, it's because of what I've done, because of, of my attempts for Him to try to follow Him, to, to do what He's told me to do, I think those gates are staying locked shut. You see, it's, it's not Jesus plus things that I've done. I think there's only one answer that's going to get us in to His presence, and the reality is, is there is nothing we can do to earn our way into his presence. And, and, and I want us to ask ourselves this question and make this thing personal. And as we think, as we talk this morning, as we get into his word, what would you say to God if he asked you this question? What would your answer be? Why should he let you in? And if there's anything that our story has been telling us, we've been, if you haven't been with us, we've just been walking through the story of the Bible. Started in Genesis and just seeing how this story all fits together to tell us what I believe is the answer to this question. And if there's anything this story has told us is there is nothing we can do to solve our problem. Nothing we can do to impress God. Where he looks at us and goes, you're right. You are pretty awesome. I didn't realize you've been reading your Bible every day for the past week. Oh, and you went 30 minutes without saying something negative about somebody? Well, come right on into the pearly gates, right? You can sit next to Peter. This story has reinforced anything. It's that there's nothing we can do, and we have to believe that God, in his grace, has provided a way for us. And I didn't forget it. These are our emotions to remember the story. If you haven't been with us, okay, hope you still come back after we do this, all right? So here we go. From the top, can you do this with me? We've got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, 
divided, exile, return, silence, and Jesus. That's where we are, all right? This is what we do. It's just like Sunday school class. Now, um, if you look through this story, man, what have we seen? What has been the, the, the trend? Have you noticed this? You go back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they sin, and they're separated from God. And what's their first attempt? The first thing they try to do is put on some fig leaves so that God might not notice that they're naked, that they might try to cover up what they've done. And God says, man, you can't do anything for yourself. Here, I'm going to kill an animal in your place and provide you with some garments. And he covers them. And then what does he tell him? His promise is, I'm going to send a deliverer who's going to come and defeat sin and death for you because there's nothing you can do to defeat it. And then the very next story in the flood, he says, I'm going to send a flood and wipe out humanity because of how sinful they are. But Noah, by my grace, if you believe what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to tell you how to build an ark to save you and your family. And God provided a way of salvation for Noah through the flood. And then we continue on, the patriarchs. Man, you think about Abraham. He comes to Abraham, who's 75 years old, and says, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, I can't make a baby. At this age, I can't even make my bed without throwing my back out. How am I, how in the world? And 25 years later, God provides a son for a 100-year-old man by his grace. And it's through that son, it's through that line that the promised deliverer will come. We think about the Exodus. God's going to kill all the firstborns. And he says to the people of Israel, if you'll kill this animal in the place of your firstborn, and you'll put the blood over the door. I will pass over. I will not kill your son. I will spare them because of my grace. And then he leads these people through the Red Sea. It's God who parts the Red Sea. It's God who kills their enemies. And then he gives them this law, which is basically given to show how much they stink and how there's nothing that you can do to measure up to God's holiness because of your sin. And over and over in the story of Israel, we just see their failures to be able to please God, to be able to do what he's called them to do, to obey him, to trust him. And over and over again, that's why he gives them these sacrifices. He says, every time you've done something wrong, I want you to kill this thing in your place. And it's pointing you forward to the the day when this deliverer is going to come and make all things right. I am going to deliver you. And now we've seen as our part of our story, here's Jesus, this deliverer who's arrived on the scene, the one who has come, the promised one, all the way back from the garden. And he's here now. And he's grown up, and we've watched him become this man who God has called him to be. And he's given this message. He says, I've come here to earth to present this kingdom and to seek and save those who are lost. And so the question is, as he comes to offer this kingdom, now how do we get into that kingdom? And why in the world should God let me, a sinner, into his kingdom, into his presence. What we're going to see here in this key, key text, we're going to go to John chapter 3. And in John 3, Jesus is going to address how you and I can enter into that kingdom. And so we look at this, he's going to give us this answer. And, and what we're going to find this morning is that the answer lies in being, not in doing. And he's going to make it very clear to Nicodemus, there's nothing you can do to enter into the kingdom. It is not the fact that you've done something wrong. It goes deeper than that. You are something wrong. And the way to come in is going to be through being and not by doing. And so Jesus is going to give us three analogies this morning. He's going to talk about birth. He's going to talk about the wind. And he's going to talk about a snake on a pole. And he's going to use these three bizarre analogies to teach us a truth that we all need to hear. 
So first of all, birth. We go to John chapter 3, and we're going to learn this story about a man named Nicodemus. It says there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Now, this is interesting. You take the name Nicodemus. It comes from two Greek words that are smashed together. The first one means Nike, okay? And that comes from the goddess of victory. You go, girl, right? Here's this. The goddess, so she's named after the goddess of victory. Then the other name comes from Demos, which means people. So, so Nicodemus' name, if you put them together, it means victor over the people, okay? So he's got some parents who have given him this name, and they say, my kid is going to be a winner, right? It'd be like a sports dad who names his kid Champ, right? My, my son is going to be a winner. That's the kind of boy that I've raised. It'd be like naming him Skull Crusher, right? Sir wins a lot. <laughs> say, hey, what's your boy's name? Crushes people. All right, it's just having boys and girls club here. That's all we're trying to do. Nic- Nicodemus was bred to be a winner, right? And he was by human standards. You look at Nicodemus's life, and it's an impressive resume. He's a Pharisee, which means he was a religious leader at the time. We've talked about them. And Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee. There were six thousand Pharisees at this point in time. And when Jesus he uses this language, which is interesting. In, in verse ten, he says, "Are you not the teacher in Israel?" He doesn't say a teacher. The the Greek there is the definite article, which means you're not just one of the teachers, you're the teacher. And it's very likely that Nicodemus was actually over. He's like the teacher's teacher. He's like at the top of the spiritual food chain, teaching, instructing 6,000 of the spiritual elite in Israel. He says not only is he a Pharisee, he's a part of the Sanhedrin, which remember that's the Jewish ruling body. And so not only does he have spiritual clout, he's got political clout. So here's a guy, I mean, you think about some of the most popular pastors today, John Piper or, or Rick Warren or, or John MacArthur. It'd be like one of them not only being a, a powerful pastor, but also being like the governor of their state or, or being a part of the Senate or something along those lines. I mean, the combination of religious and, and political power. Not only that, he was, he was Jewish. And so he was born into the chosen race, the people that God has called apart from the rest of the nations to be his kingdom of priests the promises that he's given them to build his kingdom through the, the people. And you remember the Pharisees, they keep the law down to the most minute detail. In fact, they've put laws on top of laws to make sure that they keep those laws. And so if there is anybody who has grounds to base their entrance into the kingdom of God on what they've done, it's Nick the victor, right? And so he comes to Jesus, and, and he says, this is after dark one evening, He came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, he shows Jesus a lot of respect here. Three things. He says he's rabbi, which was a term that meant teacher. Now, here's the teacher in Israel. So if the teacher of Israel is saying, man, you are a great teacher, he he gives him this term. It's a term of respect. And he says, one teacher to another, I've been impressed. I've been watching you. You're a good teacher. And then he, he says, you've been sent from God. Now this was to acknowledge him among the greats uh, with Moses and Elijah. He says, you're this man who's been sent from God. I can see that. How does he know that? He says, the evidence is in your miraculous signs. Remember we said last week that God gave his messengers these miracles to show that the authority came from God, that God had sent them. And so he shows him this great respect. He says, you're this, this amazing teacher who's been sent by God, who's done wonderful things. 
But to that, look at Jesus' response. He says in verse 3, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Now hold on a second. Did Nicodemus ask a question? Now, we're, we're, I don't think we're ever given like every line in these stories. Like this is kind of the Cliff Notes version. This seems like a total non sequitur. Like if you came up to me and said, Justin, man, I just really enjoy your preaching. It's obviously that you're, good, you're a good teacher. You've been sent here from God. And I just look at you and said, you've got to be born twice. I didn't, did I, did I bring up birth? Did you, what do you, you don't know me, right? Like what, where did this, where did this come from? Like why did he bring this up? Jesus, he didn't ask him anything about entering the kingdom of God, but this is what Jesus responds to him with. What we just saw at the end of John chapter two, it says Jesus knew the heart of man and Jesus can penetrate. And even when we're not asking the question, he knows what's in our hearts. And he looks at Nicodemus and he says, as long as you just think that I'm a good teacher, I've just been sent by God like the other prophets and you're missing it because there's something that's going on much deeper here and he is showing, he's going to show Nicodemus and he's going to show us this morning that he is something much, much more than a good teacher. And what he says is, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Now, he says, my my kingdom doors are only open to those who are born again and and you, like Nicodemus, might be confused. What, What does that mean to be born again? Right? And this is what Nicodemus asks. He goes, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? There's a word picture that you don't want into your mind, right? He goes, uh, I don't, I'm no doctor. But it was a tight squeeze the first time, right? I don't know, I might get an email for that one. I mean, this, this would be a word picture that would keep you up at night. And I, and I don't know if Nicodemus is mocking him here, like that's a crazy thing, or if he's literally just trying to get his head around it. Which is probably not a good word picture for that. Um, but he comes and he says, what in the world are you talking about? What, what do you mean I have to be born again? See, Jesus is introducing something here. What we, we call, the fancy word we call it is, is regeneration. Which just simply means this. To generate something means what? To make it. To produce it. So to, to regenerate is to make again. Right? To, to reproduce. And, and the word here is to be born again, or, or the Greek can actually mean born from above, and, and I think both of the definitions fit here, and Jesus says, if you want to enter into my kingdom, you've got to be born again, but, but you've got to be born from a different source. It's not just being born again, it's being born from a different source, and so what we see here next is Jesus says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Now, what's, what does that mean? Is the water and the spirit. Well, there's a lot of different ideas, and we can't know for sure, but when he ter- says water, some people say, well, maybe that means baptism, like there needs to be repentance involved, or it could be the washing of the water of the word. What I think here is he's, he's contrasting two things, the physical birth and the spiritual birth, and we see that in context. And what happens when we're born physically, right? We're in the womb, we're in the amniotic sac, the water breaks, and boom, baby, right? That's my bachelor scientific breakdown of how a baby's born. Right, uh, But what he's saying here is, man, you've got to be born of the water. You've got to have a physical birth. But if you want to be a part of my kingdom, if you want to be, if you want to be a part of God's family, then you've got to have a second birth. And it's not from the water again. It's not going back into your mom. It's being born of the Spirit. So what does he mean there? What's, what's he saying? Well, look at the next verse. Humans can reproduce only human life. But the Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. 
And, and here's, here's Jesus' point, I, I think. He says, you go back to the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were disconnected from God as their life source. When they sinned, holy God could no longer be in the presence, have a relationship with sinful man. That's actually what the word death means. It doesn't mean to cease to exist, because they still existed. The word death means separation. So when they died, they were separated from God. And then when they had, they had two little babies, remember Cain and Abel. And when they're born into the world, Cain and Abel, I mean, you think of them as, as stillborns. Because they are born into the world with physical life, but they're born separated from God. Because who did they come from? They came from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are sinful, separated humans, and so they give birth to sinful, separated humans. They were born outside of the garden. And in fact, I got a family tree here of Adam and Eve. Uh, it's amazing how you can find, what you can find on Google Images. Um, every person that's come from Adam and Eve have been born into this world dead, including you and me. We were born dead in our sins, Ephesians says, separated from God. Nothing we can do to reconnect ourselves with him. Because what, what can a dead person do? Nothing. Nothing but lay there and collect dust. And he says, we are born spiritually dead. There is not a single thing we can do that will please God, that will impress him enough to welcome us back into his presence. And Jesus says, if, if you want to have life with God, then you've got to have a new birth. And I think the purpose of his analogy here is to say there is nothing that you can do to be born again. Because you think about it. Here's, here's Justin Blake Franchino, born April 11th, 1984. Aw. And here he is. What, what did I, what part did I play in being born physically? None, right? I just, I wasn't, I, we don't have time to get into the birds and the bees. I see some of you were confused. But I, I had nothing to do with my physical birth, Right? I just simply was, it was my mom and my dad decided they wanted to have a kid, and I was born from them. I had no part in the action, thank you Jesus. But the same thing is spiritually, the only way to be born again, the only way to be born, to, to be rebirthed, to be reconnected with God, to be welcomed into his family, to be welcomed into his kingdom, is to be born of him. And just like we had no part in our physical birth, we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. There's nothing we can do to be born again. You cannot manufacture Christians any more than you can manufacture babies. I did not go through Frankino boot camp in order to become a Frankino, right? I go through this intense training, and, I, and I, I'm passing scores, and I say, all right, you can be a part of the family. I was just simply born a Frankino. And to be born in the kingdom of God, there are no works that we can do. It's not about how much church you attend. It's not, I mean, you know, you become a monk. You could be the Pope himself. And none of it would ever get you admitted into the kingdom of God. The old you has to die. And you need to be given new life. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. We've been given new life. And listen, being born again, it's not a second chance. And I've heard this analogy before and I, and I don't like it. It's this idea of like Jesus wiped the slate clean. And, and now it's like, okay, now try it again and don't mess it up this time. Listen, you could give me 10,000 chances and I'm going to wreck it every single time. Salvation is not a second chance. 
And, and being born again is not a new coat of paint. It's not, and what did Jesus, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. Because what they were doing is they were trying to, through their works, impress God. He says, you are dead. And you could take some white paint and you could try to cover over the things you've done, but you can't fool God. He knows that you're dead. You can't fake it. Like, I was born Italian-German. Explains a lot, right? And there's nothing... It's, it's say that, that someone said to me, you know, you need to become French. For whatever reason. And I could say, I, I could try to do all these things to become French. I don't know what French people do. Eat French toast, right? French press, right? French fries, chain smoke. I don't know. Whatever. I could try to do all these things. Sorry if you're French in here. Jesus loves you too. Um... I try to do all these things to become, but there's nothing I can do to conform myself to that. I would have to be born again to French parents. My new life is not just painting a coat of good works over my dead corpse, hoping God doesn't notice. I don't need a, a, a coat of paint, I, I don't need a second chance. I need a heart transplant. I'm dead in my sins, and unless He gives me new life, I cannot have a relationship with him. So, new birth. And the second thing he says is wind. Now, you look at this in verse 8. It says, The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Now, this is interesting here. He uses two words, the wind and the Spirit. And in the Greek, the word there is the exact same word. It's the word pneuma. It's where we get pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And the word here for wind and Spirit, he's using the same word to make a point. And in the Hebrew, and I love this, and this actually takes a, a step beyond this, the, the Hebrew word is ruach. Everybody say ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you gotta like, you're gonna get a loogie. Okay, don't actually do that. Um, but you get ruach. And this ru- word for ruach, it means wind or spirit. It can also mean breath. And you go back to the creation story, and it says in uh, Genesis 2, then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath, his ruach, he breathed this breath of life into man's nostrils, and man became a living person. So here's Adam, formed of the dust. He's laying on the ground. No life in him. He's just laying there. Nothing he can do. But when God places his pneuma, his spirit, his breath, his ruach into him, Adam is animated and becomes alive and can walk and sing and play and do the hokey pokey. And so God, he gives us, I mean, he gives us breath, right? Everybody hold your hand out like this. And say, hello. Very, very good. Now, other than reminding you that you didn't brush your teeth this morning, what, what you found, what you just did, that's your ruach. That's your breath. Or as the Hebrew mindset would see it, that is your, the spirit within you. The life that God gave you. God gave each of us when we were born life into us. What separates a living person from a dead person is God breathing his breath into us. And unless... The Holy Spirit breathes new life into us. We're nothing more than a spiritual corpse. And this is a cool word picture that we go back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, he tells this story. He has this vision, this creepy vision of this valley of dry bones. He just looks and everywhere he sees there's skeletons just laying there on the ground doing exactly what skeletons do best. Nothing right? There's these skeletons just laying there, and he says there's this vision, and he's comparing it, because at this time when Ezekiel's writing it, the people of Israel had been exiled. Remember when they they disobeyed the law, they'd been forced out of the promised land, and now they're in Babylon and Assyria. They're in captivity, 
dead to God, separated from God. It's a picture of our spiritual life today. And he says, there's no way that you can get back into the land, the life that I've given you. And this is what he says in verse 5. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath, ruach, into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He gives him this word picture. I'm going to breathe my life back into you. He says in verse 14, I will put my spirit in you. Again, the same word, ruach. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return to your, home, your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. He says, if you'll believe me, if you'll trust my word, I am going to deliver you out of exile and showing the spiritual analogy of we are dead in our sins unless I put my spirit in you. You can never come home. We say, how does he do this? Look at this, and this is the point. He says, the wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Listen, I can't put, this is beyond me. We can't explain this, break this down in a PowerPoint. How does this happen? He goes, it's a mystery, just like the wind. Now, what about the wind? He says, you you can't see the wind, right? When the wind blows, you can't see it, but you can feel its effect. You think about what's been going on with Hurricane Harvey. And we could not see the mighty winds that blew in Houston. But today, we can see the effects, the power, the devastation that this invisible wind has brought. In the same way, we can't see the Spirit. We can't see His Ruach, but we can feel His effects. Amen? How do you see that? How do you see that the Spirit has been placed into somebody? Well, you know a tree by its fruit. That's what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And you can see in somebody love and joy and peace and patience. You can see the power of the Holy Spirit in a life. I've been part of Celebrate Recovery this past year, and it has been unbelievable to watch God transform his loved ones by his Spirit and overcome temptations and addictions to break the power of the chains of sin in a way that only God can. We can't see it, but we feel its effect. And unless we have God's ruach in us, his breath, his life, we are dry bones. We're a dead corpse. So then the question is, well, well how do we get this new life? How do, we, how do we get this spirit breathed into us? How do we become born again in this way? And this is where Jesus takes us in his third and final analogy. He takes us to a snake on a pole. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And this calls us back to this story in Numbers chapter 21. We talked about this in our story. Remember, there's these people, the Israelites, whining again. And so God, he says, I'm going to send these venomous snakes, and they're going to start biting the people, and they're going to start dying. And so you have this this snake infestation, and all these Israelites dying of these snake bites. And what we see in this story, it's a story of sin, right? The people of Israel, they, they, are, they get what they deserve, right? This is not God being cruel. This is God being just. They're whining. They're complaining. They're not trusting him over and over again. And so to send these snakes, to punish them for their sins, that's just. But it's not just a story of sin. It's a story of grace. God graciously intervenes. What they don't deserve is a remedy for the snake bites. But God steps in and he offers a cure. And how does he do that? Well, finally, this is a story of faith. The access to God's grace from their sin is through 
faith, through trusting him to provide. See, there was nothing they could do. If I was on scene, what would be your first response? Everybody's getting snake bit. What would you do? I'd go on a snake hunt, right? Let's kill these stinking snakes. And I'd be coming around, just, you know, taking them out. Or I'd start to try to develop. We've got to get some kind of anti-venom. We've got to get stuff in people. We've got to heal them. I would immediately try to start doing something. And God says, then there's nothing you can do. You're going to die unless you believe what I've told you. And I've, and this would make no sense, but he says, I'm going to put this bronze snake on a pole and lift it up. And if you look at that snake, you'll live. And in the face of what seems to be absurd, if they take his word by faith, it says you'll be cured. You and I have been bitten by sin. And our immediate reaction is to try to do something. I've got to kill the sin, right? I've got to take it out. I've got to beat it. I've got to read a book, Three Easy Steps to Overcome Pornography. <laughs> I've got to do something. I've got to read more. I've got, got to go to church more. I've got to do, do, do. And the reason I think we do this, that we immediately, instead of immediately looking to God and his grace, we so desperately want the credit. The reason we don't just accept God's grace, God's provision, is I want so bad to earn my salvation so that I can boast about it, so that I can take credit in God accepting me because of who I am. So we immediately look, look to how we do or don't measure up. That's why grace is so offensive to us. It says, you can't do it, you need me. No, the Israelites, they were called not to action, but to turn their eyes to another and trust what God said, what he did for them. And Jesus says the same thing for you, Nicodemus. Look what he says. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, it's interesting. Here's another word play in the Greek. Because that word lifted up, it can mean a couple of different things. First of all, it can mean glorified or exalted. So this word can carry the idea that, that, that you know, when a king sits on a throne or somebody, something does somebody, some, that somebody does something wonderful, everybody glorifies them, exalts them, praises them for what they've done. But we know the story. How is Jesus going to be lifted up? Not on a throne. But he's going to be lifted up on a cross. He's going to be crucified. And Jesus is saying, my glory is going to come through death. My exaltation is going to come through crucifixion. And then we turn to a, a verse that you've probably heard. That, that this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And there's this beautiful picture here that love gives life through pain and suffering. And I think about you know, why, why did my mom go through the pain of childbirth? Like, if you've been through that process, you, you know it's no joy ride, right? Why, why would she go through that pain and that suffering? Why would she go through that terrible experience? Why would she suffer that? Why would she sign up for that? She did it for me. She wanted me to have life. And because she loved me, she went through what she went through to give me life. Thanks, Mom. And Jesus, he says, because God loved us, because he loved us and he wanted to seek and save those who were lost, he says, you know why God sacrificed his son? Why he would let his own son leave heaven to descend among man? Why Jesus would die? Why he'd go through the most horrible suffering you could ever imagine? He goes, you know why he went through that? 
because he wanted to give me life. He loves me, and it's through pain and suffering that he gave me life. So how do I get this spirit put in me? How do I become born again? It's Jesus giving me his own life. Galatians 2.20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. He took care of that old dead sinner. And now he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's Jesus, his Ruach. It's his pneuma. It's his spirit, his breath that lives inside of me now. He gave it to me freely. He sacrificed himself on the cross. You see, your spiritual birth cost you nothing. But it cost him everything. There's nothing we can do. But he has paid it all. It's done. It's paid in full. See, Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. He knew that this victor over the people was going to try to look at himself and go, man, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Sanhedrin. I was born a Jew. And outwardly, I've kept the law. Pretty good, Jesus. you got to admit. And Jesus looks at everything that he's done, everything he's done on his own, and he rejects it. He says, you will never be led into the kingdom based on your own resume. He says, Nicodemus, I'm not just a good teacher that was sent from God. I'm life. I'm your only hope. And until you are ready to abandon all of that, to surrender and say, I can't do anything to earn a place in your kingdom, to to gain a relationship with God, and until we're willing to surrender all of that and say, the only hope I have is that Jesus would give me his life, cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we don't know whether or not Nicodemus believes in this passage. It just kind of leaves us hanging. Jesus goes on to a monologue and it goes on to the next story. There's a couple of stories later on in John that do indicate that Nicodemus came to believe and put his trust in Jesus. He's one of the ones that buries Jesus after he's been crucified. That's Nicodemus' story. Man, what's, what's yours this morning? If you were to stand before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And I think if, if he asked me that, and we don't come to him lightly. Jacob talked about it earlier. We come before this God who lives in unapproachable light. That if we saw him, we would fall down dead because of his holiness. So we don't just come skipping and jumping and say, what's up, God? We walk in with fear and trembling. But Hebrews says we can walk in with boldness. Why? Because if God looks at me and says, why should I let you into heaven? I say, you shouldn't. You shouldn't based on what I've done. But I would give him a one-word answer if he was asking me. And this is the word I would say to him. Jesus. I was dead. I could do nothing. But Jesus came down to this earth, died in my place, gave me his life, took my sinful life, crucified at the cross, and then gave me his new ruach, his new life in me, and you accept me because you accept him. And that's it. That's it. The way I would say it is this. God said it. Christ did it. And if you believe it, that settles it. God has said in his word, I sent my son to die for you so that you may have life. And if I believe it, look, that's not just mental assent. 
that every bone in our body wants to trust ourselves, but is pushing all our chips in and saying, I believe, I fully surrender to Jesus, that he is the only way back to God. Do you believe that this morning? Doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. Doesn't matter who your parents are. Doesn't matter how many old ladies you've helped across the street. Do you believe what God said about what Jesus did? Let's pray. Father, we're all in different places in this room, different backgrounds, different understandings, different walks. But Lord, what unites us all is, is first of all, that we are dead in our sins, born dead into our sins, separated from you. Nothing we can do to make things right. No good work that we can do to climb the ladder and achieve kingdom status. Father, I pray for those in this room that, that haven't pushed their chips in, that are still trying to hang on to their own good works, that they would surrender to those and say, it's only because of what Jesus did. And we hear the Savior, and he says, your, your strength is small. There's nothing you can do. Even though we so desperately want some credit. He says, child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me your all in all. I'm your life. I am the perfect sacrifice. And if you'll put your faith in me, if you'll lift your eyes up and look at the, the snake on the pole, if you'll look at Jesus and him crucified, can enter in and I'll build you a mansion and I'll live with you forever because of what Christ did for you because of Christ who Christ is in you and there's anyone in this room this morning that is, has never surrendered has never placed their faith in that that Jesus has never lifted their eyes up the eyes of faith to look on the pole and to believe that Jesus will give us new life that we can be born again in him that they would not put it off till tomorrow they place your faith in Jesus today in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.